The health information offered on the Critical Care Commute podcast and the resources available for download through the podcast and show notes is provided for general informational and educational purposes only. It is not intended as a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you very much for your precious finite time. It's a real pleasure to introduce a good friend of ours, a fantastic intensivist traumatologist and a good friend, Sandy Widder. She's taught me, well, many millions of things over the years. I feel like she was the one that also taught me that trauma steals more qualities and more years from people's lives than just about any other disease, but gets short shrift despite that, while we're all obsessed by cardiac disease and pulmonary disease and neuro disease and many other laudable diseases, but poor old trauma gets ignored. So we're going to try and rectify that situation and introduce uh, Sandy Witter. Sandy, how are you? I am fantastic, Peter. Nice to see you. Thank you for having me on the podcast, you and Leon. It's a real pleasure. Well, you just wait till you hear the questions. But uh, with no <laughs> more ado, over to my good friend, Dr. Biker. Um, so Dr. Wooder is an absolutely amazing human being and doctor. She's a trauma surgeon, intensivist. Somewhere she finds time for quality improvement and patient safety. She works in health administration and as an associate professor in the Department of Critical Care and Surgery at the University of Alberta. And other than that, she's also the assistant zone director on integrated quality management, if uh, all of that wasn't enough. Now, I work in a community site, and we don't see a, a lot of trauma. The trauma gets shipped off to hospitals that can deal with it more appropriately. So for myself, I thought the best way to go about this would be just a barrage of questions in order for me to, uh, I guess, update my knowledge on trauma. I was taught that trauma has a bimodal mortality distribution, guessing it's still the same. So what, what is the number one reason for that, for that mortality early on? Yeah, so I think, um, Leon, it is truly bimodal distribution if you don't count the deaths that happen at time zero. And if we do count those deaths, then we term it trimodal distribution. So a lot of our patients who die at time zero, if you can imagine, are the big bad injuries. So great vessel injuries, severe traumatic brain injury, high spinal cord injuries. And those are typically the patients that die at the time of impact that don't end up making it to hospital. Um Within the first six hours, probably the number one reason for mortality is hemorrhage. And even if you work in a community setting, I think if you're a bystander, anybody who's out there needs to know how to stop bleeding because it is one of the main causes of mortality in trauma. And this is typically why we coined the term golden hour of resuscitation, because it's a time where when we can recognize bleeding, when we can manage the bleeding and treat the bleeding, we can actually make a difference in patients' outcomes and lives. And then typically later on, some of the later deaths that you, myself, Peter, probably have seen, especially in the ICU setting, uh, happen to patients who either succumb to their injuries, especially in the multi-system um, injured patients and or multi-organ failure due to some of the complications that we see. And typically that's around two to four weeks out. Excellent. We're off to the races. So take home point number one, bimodal or trimodal distribution. Take home point number two, it's still hemorrhage, hemorrhage, hemorrhage. So with hemorrhage in mind, we can put an external tourniquet on, or I guess we can put a form of internal tourniquet on, whether it be Reboa or one of our dear surgeons. 
using a bit of Vicro. Uh, where is the technology of tourniquets? Is it still an issue of stop messing around and just tourniquet for God's sake? Yeah, it's very interesting, Peter, because we actually, um, as part of our accreditation as a province, we looked at some of our rural trauma sites and uh, found that we weren't actually carrying tourniquets in some of the smaller hospitals. And so as part of our quality improvement as a trauma system, we actually um, introduce tourniquets to all these sites because there's still a role for basic simple things um, latex or your finger uh, to stop bleeding rule number one I still think that there's improvements that can be made in terms of getting IV access and the rule should be if you don't get two large bore IVs in five minutes or less you really should go to IO don't mess around by doing things like putting in triple lumens. We need big, large bore IVs to be able to infuse the blood and blood products. Uh, rewarming your patients, um, replacing key electrolytes like calcium and correcting your acidosis. All those basic things need to be done. Um, going back to the tourniquet as a means to stop bleeding, absolutely, especially if it's extremity bleeding. I think the key thing is to uh, make sure that your tourniquet's tight, to not apply it over any joint areas, so elbows and knees. And then obviously if there's bleeding in some of the crevices, be it the neck or the armpits or the groin, that's where you might want to go to direct pressure or packing. Things that even non-surgeons can do, basic people out there in the population to try to stop bleeding. But it buys the surgeon time. Uh, it gets the OR team prepped and ready so that we can control bleeding definitively. Fantastic. I feel like we're take-home point rich already with uh, the discussion of tourniquets. Fascinating and terrifying at the same time that we can afford lasers in hospitals, but we don't seem to have tourniquets everywhere they should be. And I was certainly taught the toughest part of a tourniquet is having the sort of intestinal fortitude to actually put the darn thing on along with proper direct pressure, rather than there being any terrible science to it. And I've, I've read all sorts of awful case reports of highly skilled people standing around while somebody hemorrhaged to death and nobody actually, as you say, using their hand, their knee, their arm, their whatever. So let's pivot then into other forms of tamponade. Reboa, flash in the pan, Sandy, or where's the science of Reboa and the practice of Reboa as of today? Well, I will say it is sexy. So mm -hmm. Reboa, just even saying it, <laughs> sexy. Yeah. So for those who don't know, resuscitative endovascular balloon occlusion of the aorta is what Reboa stands for. And to simplify it, what it essentially does is, is like a closed thoracotomy. So it allows for occlusion of the aorta, similar to us opening up a chest as surgeons and cross-clamping the aorta. And what that allows us to do is it gives us time. It slows down the amount of bleeding so that you can catch up with your resuscitation. And also, again, allows for the operating room and the surgeons and the teams to get ready to bring patients to the OR. Um, sounds pretty simple in that you get femoral access through the common femoral artery. Um, you then use Seldinger technique to put in your sheath and then your catheter and inflate the balloon. Um, but there are risks associated with it. Um, the big centers that do it have high volume, so they do this often. They also have other means available in terms of the fact that they're not only skilled individuals who have a lot of um, 
numbers so that their complication rates are low. These are typically done by surgeons so that if they do run with, into a complication, they can deal with the complication. But the third thing too is you can't use Reboa definitively. And so if you are using this technology, you have to be able to get a patient to the operating room and what's touted as a, as a reasonable time is about 15 to 20 minutes. And I would say that it's definitely a technology that's being used in some parts of Canada in some of the bigger trauma center is Edmonton there. Not quite yet is it something that we're all training and reading about and hopefully using sometime in the future, perhaps, especially with our increasing rates of penetrating trauma. But I would say read about it, understand it, know the pros and cons of its use. But for now, I think um, having a high quality resuscitation, like I mentioned before, the large bore IVs, access, tourniquets, timely OR, I think are, are more important. And getting familiar with your thoracotomy use would be better. Isn't it amazing when the cutting edge is to do the simple things right? Um, I, I just want to emphasize your large bore IV, your interosseous, if you can't get one, you've already mentioned the lethal triad of trauma, hypothermia, acidosis, coagulopathy, and get them to an operating room quickly. Back when I was a med student, the big back in the last century, when uh, we brought patients on horses and buggies to the hospital, um, there was a lot of talk about whether you go to the emergency room and resuscitate first or whether you get straight to the OR. And my sense back then was you get to the OR. You've sort of re-emphasized 15 to 20 minutes before a surgeon is, uh, is cutting. Is that still where we're at? I would say, Peter, if we can get patients straight to the OR, especially if we know they're an extremist coming in, that's the best place to continue a resuscitation, to be honest. Um, I think the way to get them to the OR is by activating your trauma team so that you get everybody on board early, including anesthesia and the surgeons, and they can facilitate making those things happen. But really, uh, for quality indicators, your resuscitation for an activation should be under an hour and even that slightly long. And you should try to get your patient to the OR, especially if they're an extremist, in under 30 minutes. Oh, boy. Yeah. So many learning points. So many questions pop into my head. Um, Pre-hospital reboa. Is that a thing? Is that safe as long as you can get somebody <laughs> into that facility in 20 minutes? Yeah, I, and I would say, Leon, this is the downside of sexy technology, right? It sounds very simple, but if you're not familiar with it, if you don't use it all the time, and there are indications, right? Your patient has to have a systolic blood pressure of 90 or less, and they have to be a transient or non-responder. So they are sort of your pre-code patient. So if you're futzing around with technology that you're not familiar with, I think you're wasting precious time that could be spent on the patient. Um, Pre-hospital Reboa, you know, Edmonton's a very unique city in that uh, we've got a huge catchment area and we get patients from BC, Alberta, and then up north in the territories. Mm -hmm. And certainly leaving um, the aorta occluded for a long period of time is not recommended because it will lead to complications, especially to all of the end organs. And again, I think if your patient is an extremist, work on the simple stuff, put on the pressure, get the IVs early blood and blood products, and then call your friendly neighborhood surgeon to get help. 
aspects. And yeah, you, you've mentioned uh, the early resuscitation a few times now. And maybe we can use it as a, as a segue to, to the massive transfusion protocol or massive hemorrhage protocol. Um, has anything changed in that? What do we use to, to trigger that? Any, yeah, any new advice on that? Yeah, I think the nice thing about our massive hemorrhage protocol was when we actually did quality reviews looking at some of the delays, we always found that it was because we were waiting for the FFP to thaw. And so what we've actually done is we've broken our massive hemorrhage protocol into two uh, baskets so that basket one, you will get your four units of packed red blood cells and your two grams of fibrinogen up front. And then package number two, which will come later, will contain the FFP, the packed red blood cells, and now the platelets. I think what's new and novel um, in Edmonton compared to some of the other centers across Canada and North America is that we actually use fibrinogen and we have been using it early in our resuscitation for at least the last eight years. And what it's demonstrated, especially in not only trials, but just with our local data is it decreases our blood product usage. It stops hemorrhage early mm -hmm. um, and it's highly recommended to be part of the resuscitation. Um, you've already answered fibrinogen versus cryo. Is, is, is cryoglobulin still a thing at all? Yeah, I mean, I think for cryo, there are special needs for it. I think in certain patient populations, um, you know, if you have von Willebrand's or uh, maybe if you're a hemophiliac, uh, certainly, you know, if I was dealing with those special populations, I would probably involve my transfusion medicine colleagues for additional advice. Um, I would say that fibrinogen by itself uh, probably carries more fibrinogen than the cryo, and that's what we tend to use. Mm -hmm. um, it's easy to mix. You can administer it directly through an IV or an IO. It can be stored at room temperature for a prolonged period of time. And so there's very little waste when you request fibrinogen to be at the bedside. Gotcha. Is there any hesitancy in actually activating this protocol? Or how do we go about that? Uh, you know, I, I kind of get the impression that sometimes it's like, it's something you think about, but there's still hesitancy in maybe actually doing it. Yeah, and I would say that, you know, if there's a downside, it's always the concern that we're maybe wasting blood and blood products, certainly uh, thawing the FFP and not using it, I think, um, is something that we're always very conscious about when it comes to limited resources. But what I would say is what is not wasted is having blood at the bedside and having it early. Um, and another way to, I guess, guide whether or not um, you utilize the massive hemorrhage protocol is using scoring systems, things like the ABC score. So it's a score that's used at a lot of U.S. and Canadian trauma centers, even pre-hospital um, staff can use it. Um, and what the ABC score is, it's based on four parameters. So if your patient has sustained penetrating trauma, if they have a positive fast, if they're hypotensive, systolic blood pressure of less than 90 or tachycardic with a heart rate of greater than 120, if you score two or more out of the four, there's a high chance your patient's going to need a massive hemorrhage protocol. And so... Um, 
you know, obviously there's still a risk of blood wastage, but let me tell you that if your patient doesn't score two or more, the negative predictive value on that is less than 5%. So I think, you know, using some more of these scoring systems to guide us, I think having better communication with our pre-hospital colleagues can also determine whether or not we should activate massive hemorrhage protocol. I think at the end of the day, it's always better to activate it sooner rather than later because when you're in the crux of your recess it's always something that you forget and there's always delays but definitely you can always ask for uncross-matched blood at the bedside got it peter so good so good all right you mentioned uh, let me pick up on some loose ends here you you mentioned the fast study i i always worry it's too darn slow how fast should a fast be sandy because they're taking up resuscitative real estate Well, again, can I say the F word on this podcast? Focused. Oh, very good. Focused (laughs) abdominal sonography for trauma. So I think, you know, it really should be five minutes or less. People get into fixation errors where they're not getting the perfect windows. And to be honest, if you can't see, you can't see, move on. Because if your patient's unstable, you're probably going to go to the OR. And if your patient's stable, you're probably going to do further imaging. So I would say five minutes or less. Um, Shout out to my pre-hospital colleagues, especially uh, STARS, where they actually are using ultrasound. And it has Mm -hmm. helped us determine whether or not patients have injuries and also where we should be targeting our management. Fantastic. And we should shout out to STARS, the Shock Trauma Air Rescue Service of uh, Western Canada. They're fantastic people. Uh, We talked about the MHPs. Tranexamic acid, any downside? DDAVP if they're on aspirin or have lousy platelets? Or are we we just wasting our time at this point? Yeah, I think we don't typically use DDAVP, but thank you for bringing up the TXA, Peter. It is, you know, something that is part of our trauma armamentarium. There have been multiple studies um, done, matters, the crashed crash trials that have demonstrated uh, decreased mortality, decreased blood product usage when we use TXA. We are lucky in Alberta in that we've got a pre-hospital system uh, that's provincial and that's run by one service. And the great thing that these individuals are phenomenal at is giving that first dose of TXA for the right trauma patient. So we actually have over 90% compliance in giving that first dose. What you can't forget is to give that second dose within the first three hours. Fantastic. One of the last squares remaining on my trauma bingo card here, Sandy, is uh, BCVIs, blunt cerebral vascular injuries, and it always comes up as a neurointensivist. So who needs that CTA and who doesn't? Well, if you look at the expanded Denver criteria, almost everyone, um, I would say if you've got bad mechanism, bad injuries, it should probably get done. Obviously, you know, there's the big obvious things. If somebody's got a stroke, if neurologically they're not acting the way they should based on what their CT scan shows. Um, But don't forget about C-spine injuries. Don't forget about uh, upper rib injuries. If you have any type of thoracic vascular injury, craniofacial, um, those individuals should also be scanned in addition to the mechanisms. Fantastic. And if they can tolerate it, is it still aspirin for three months? If, If you find something, obviously. 
yeah, typically, you know, either anti antiplatelets, anticoagulation, less likely given the other injuries. And it's very rare that we've seen stenting, but uh, sometimes neurosurgery does have to get involved for uh, operative management. I'm glad we've moved on to some of the ICU uh, management things. We are 20 minutes into our commute, and I think uh, now's the time for some rapid-fire ICU questions. Traumatic brain injury, where are we at on seizure prophylaxis, and what do we use? Yeah, so for seizure prophylaxis, what's now recommended is uh, Keppra. It's got a better side effect profile than Dilantin. You don't have to follow levels. So typically a one gram loading dose followed by 500 uh, BID, and it's the same IV or POs is what's recommended for prophylaxis for seven days in some of our trauma patients. That being said, not every trauma patient should have seizure prophylaxis. I'm talking about Patients who have uh, moderate to severe traumatic brain injury, their GCS is typically less than 13, and they've got evidence of something on their CT scan, be it a contusion or a subdural or an epidural. C-spine clearance, who does it on what grounds? (laughs) So the one thing I will say wearing my quality safety hat is if you're going to clear a C-spine, please, please, please document it. I think that's so important for passing Mm -hmm. on that information. Um, ICU trauma patients are a bit of a a special category on their own in that a lot of the time uh, they tend to be obtunded. It's difficult to do a clinical exam. What I will say is that C-spine collars are evil. Um, The sooner we can clear C-spines, the better it is. And as a quality indicator for a trauma center, we try to get them done within 24 hours. We -hmm. know that it decreases a patient's ability to mobilize. It increases intracranial pressure. Um, Certainly, it's not comfortable for the patient, and definitely it can cause uh, nursing issues and things like skin breakdown and secondary infections. You can clear C-spines in obtunded trauma patients if they have a normal CT C-spine. The risk of missing an isolated ligamentous injury is very rare. Mm -hmm. That being said... All of the studies that demonstrated radiological clearance were based on your typical young 20-something-year-old male Mm. with healthy bone structure. And what we're seeing more and more of is the Jerry traumas. Mm -hmm. So if there's any evidence of any degenerative changes, if you have an incomplete CTC spine, if you can't see from C0 to T1, you should not be clearing those C-spines. I'd just like to emphasize, last time I went skiing with my youngest son, my nickname became Jerry Trauma. It was very uh, distressing, Sandy. 55 and over, Peter. You fit (laughs) in that category. How dare you? I'm younger. (laughs) (laughs) Um, (laughs) Hey, who's the victim on this podcast? (laughs) Moving on quickly. Anticoagulation for DVT prof after this trauma. Is it still an individualized decision based on the patient? Or are there any guidelines as to when we can start it? Yeah, I think there's more and more guidelines that have been coming out. And I'm glad to see that we're getting away from people being uncomfortable and making individual decisions and being more evidence-based. So what I would say is that most patients honestly should have DVT prophylaxis at the time of admission. There are some caveats. Um, So if you look at your head trauma patients, what we're typically saying is that you re-image them in 24 hours. And if there's no expansion of their intracranial pathology, you can start DVT prophylaxis. Um, For thoracoabdominal injuries, 
Typically, we're still saying that if you have grade four or higher intra-abdominal organ injuries, you should probably hold your anticoagulation for the first 24 hours so mm-hmm. that you can correct coagulopathy. But after 24 hours, there's no reason why you can't start them on the anticoagulation. And then the only other subset of patients that maybe you might want to check in with the surgeons would be spinal cord patients. Um, We know, unfortunately, they're the highest risk for getting clots. What I would say is that if they're stabilized early, uh, you can start anticoagulation, DBT, chemoprophylaxis, I should say, within the first 24 hours. Unfortunately, sometimes the OR runs slow and we don't always get our spine patients fixed. And I think if it's going to be more than 48 hours, uh, discussion should be had with the surgeons. And at a minimum, these patients should have some type of mechanical uh, prophylaxis for DVT. Perfect. One of our remaining questions is Jerry Trauma. So I think I'll I'll claim I'm asking for a friend. Um, Sandy, why is it such a big deal? Well, I think it's a big deal because the population is changing, Peter. Um, in the next probably 10 years, 30% of our population is going to be 65 and older. And not only that, but, uh, you know, 95 is the new 65. We're seeing people survive longer and longer. They're um, living life to the fullest. And so unfortunately, they are going to be involved in these traumas. I think what we sometimes don't recognize is that they are a subspecialized population. Not only do they undergo physiological, but they also undergo anatomical changes with age. And so we have to recognize that so we can uh, manage and treat these patients early and avoid uh, comorbidities. Excellent. Leon? Yeah, 25 minutes in. I do have one burning quick question. It's back to chest injuries. Do we, where are we on fixation of rib fractures for pain control and so on? Is that a thing, not a thing? Yeah, so I would say there's good evidence uh, recommending that we should be doing rib fixation, not on every single patient, um, but certainly I think if people have more than um, five ribs that are a flail segment, you should probably Mm -hmm. consider it, especially if they're requiring non-invasive positive pressure or just ventilation in general. I think if your patients have a symptomatic non-union, or if you're there at the time of a thoracotomy for other reasons, and you see multiple rib fractures, it should be fixed. There's good evidence demonstrating that it decreases ICU length of stay, decreases vent days, which probably in turn decreases your risk for things like ventilator-associated pneumonias. Mm -hmm. Um, Who can do your rib fixation? Well, most trauma surgeons uh, who have done trauma fellowship training should be trained in that. Mm -hmm. Um, Obviously, some orthopedists are very... um, engaged and can facilitate as well as thoracic surgeons. And in Edmonton, when we do these cases, we typically have a multi-pronged approach that's very collaborative. So we all learn from one another. Well, Sandy, all that's left is really to uh, say thank you, thank you, thank you. This has been an incredible chat. Um, I've learned a ton. I think think my biggest home or take-home message um, is... Keep the red stuff in if you can. If it's coming out, make sh- make damn well sure that you have enough IVs and resuscitative efforts to 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 get it there and get it and get that patient to a surgeon ASAP. Absolutely, I, I we've had 
take on points every minute or two, the importance of hemostasis, the importance of tamper down. I don't know why you guys are laughing at me. Uh, the importance <laughs> of uh, Jerry trauma, clearly. I call it red stuff and you call it, <laughs> and you come along eloquently explaining it differently. That's all. <laughs> <laughs> Well, somebody's got to be responsible for maintenance of the English language here, Leah. Um, uh, the, don't forget your IOs. Get those IVs in quickly. Tamponade. Don't forget the basics, I guess, is my major take-home point. Call that MHP early. Don't forget tranexamic acid. Maybe we haven't talked about this, but I'll just emphasize the importance of getting to know your surgeons. You know, the, know them ahead of time. You know, the world has been full of inaccurate, silly jokes about surgeons being standoffish and unapproachable, and they are nothing of the sort. <laughs> they are fantastic colleagues who uh, get stuff done, but they do need a phone call first before they'll do it, and relationship before task always works best. Uh, who better to exemplify all the great qualities of a trauma surgeon than Dr. Sandy Widder? Thank you. Very kind, Peter. Leon, remember, trauma is a team sport, and... There's no such thing as eye and team, right? I don't think there's an eye in trauma either. I'm just uh, quickly <laughs> checking. Awesome. Thank you so much for coming on. Thank you both. <laughs>